All right, welcome back to the podcast, Trust Your Dopeness. I'm your host, Blaine McConnell, and today I have with me a good friend, a former bobsled teammate of myself and Carlo. For those that listened to the previous episode, I have Mr. James Reed, Olympian, photographer, and what else are you? Ooh, that's probably about it. All right. <laughs> there's, there's more to me than just those two things, but it's good to be here. Cool. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Uh, so, I mean, people listening to this episode probably don't know who you are because a lot of people who come to this podcast are those that follow me via social media. They know things that you've been involved with, which we'll get into yep. a little bit later. Um, Jimmy is the guy holding the grinder in that photo that I posted, <laughs> it is yeah, a grinder. The f- there's every time <laughs> people see that photo, they're like, what is he holding? What's going on here right now? I, so w- when we took that photo, I didn't think of think anything of it. But then <laughs> as soon as I showed anyone that photo, their first reaction was exactly what you think it is. They're like, your eyes go straight to that. And they think it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a grinder. It's like a, what would, is that the term for that tool? It's just like a spinning yeah, a wheel. Grinder. Yeah. Just a yeah. spinning wheel. That's I don't know how machine graphic powered. we can be on here. <laughs> we can do Are the rules. There's no rules. Okay. Yeah. It looks like I'm holding my cock. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. I'm going to use that photo again to promote the episode. So those that are clicking on those photos, don't feel too bad about it. Like that was, that was, that was for a good cause. And we'll get into that a little bit later. First, we're going to start off with how Jimmy and I, became to actually like be acquaintances, know each other, his journey into bobsled. Cause that's where we met. And then we're just going to go from there. So let's, let's start off with that. Um, same thing I did with Carlo is just like, how in the hell did you get into bobsled? All right. Um, getting into bobsled. So I ran track and field at the university of Maine. I was primarily, primarily a hurdler, ran 60 meter hurdles, one ten meter hurdles. Um, I was a good, college athlete i wasn't great i wasn't elite but i felt like i had more to give and i knew i wasn't going to run track and field professionally because in the u.s to run track and field professionally are really anywhere you just have to be on a whole other level and i wasn't wasn't anywhere near that and i knew that um but i still wanted to compete and i actually had a bobsled or my track and field coach actually bobsledded back in 2005, 2006. And he was the first one to tell me about bobsledding. And what I love is that it seems like every guy we've ever been on the team with has that same type of story where like, there's always like a weird relationship that you have. Someone's like, Oh, you should go bobsled. And that's how like most of the guys are on the team. It's not like an organic process where someone grows up and just wants to bobsled their whole life. No, that's very true. That's the same thing with me. I happen to know somebody that knew someone that was involved with bobsled. Otherwise, that opportunity probably would never have popped in my head at all. Yeah. And um, that's very similar to so, what Carlo had just said, too, in the last episode. Is that his track coach was like, hey, you should try bobsled. Yeah. Um, and we actually had three guys from the University of Maine who all came out. So Frankie Del Duca, who was my pilot at the Olympics, and then Chris Enslin, came out with me. We did our first combine together and he slid for two years. And so for a little while we had three university main athletes who were trying to make the bobsled team. Good old Frankie Del Duca. He'll be on the, the podcast here in the next couple of weeks as well. You're going to talk 
about VWs and scooters. <laughs> I know. It's just going to be a car episode with that guy. <laughs> so in in terms of like, obviously you tried out, you made the team. You had a, a unique experience over the course of like the two quads that you participated in. Um, yeah. Talk about that first quad and how that ended and what kind of things that you went through with that type of an ending, trying to make it to an Olympic team. And then we'll transition after that about that second quad. And like, we'll talk about the activities that went on. There was a lot of stuff that happened in that second quad that you were there. So the a lot, four, lot of stuff, the four years I was there, but talk about that first, like, was it, was it, you came in in a year two in a quad, didn't you? Or did you come in? Yeah. Year, year one, year 2014. One. Okay. So you had yep. a full four years. Talk about what that experience was like basically going from a rookie into the national team competing with one of the best pilots who have ever driven a bobsled ever. Yeah. And the experience of like how that first four years ended for you. So when I joined the team in 2014, that's the beginning of the next quad. So the Sochi Olympics were in 2014 in February. And then that next year, a whole bunch of people came out, um, what was, what was really unique about, maybe not even unique because apparently it happens all the time, but everyone on the team had left, retired, moved on from bobsled. And so I came out with a huge rookie class and we just filled in those guys' spots who left. And so I came at a really good time where I was able to come out and make the national team my first year, just like you did. Um, and so... I slid for my first two seasons with uh, Nick Cunningham, and we kind of had ups and downs, had some solid push times, some decent results, but nothing really that noteworthy. Um, and sometimes it really takes two to three years to really feel like you, you know what you're doing in the sport because we recruit these guys who are big and fast and strong and amazing athletes, but it really takes a couple of years for you to feel like you know what you're doing in the sport of bobsled. Um, and so that happened to me my third season. Um, I ended up sliding with Steve Holcomb, who won gold in 2010 in the four-man in Vancouver and then won double silver in Sochi. So greatest pilot of all time um, in the U.S. program, male, for sure. And I slid with Carlo Valdez, who was on your podcast last week, and Sam McGuffey. And that season, we won four World Cup medals and finished third overall. And so we got a bronze crystal globe, which in winter sports, at the end of the season on, on rankings, you get a crystal globe and it's a pretty big deal. And so that's one of like my major accomplishments in the sport is I got a crystal globe and I'm super proud of that season. We just went out there and pushed Steve really well and Steve brought it home and did an amazing job. So we finished that season up. This is the third year of the quad. And so we finished that season up doing really, really well. And now after you finish that season, all eyes are on the Olympics and the Olympic season. Um, and then very tragically, Steve passed away. He uh, accidentally overdosed. Um, and it threw, I mean, it, it was tragic for all the guys on the team personally it was tragic for the federation to have that happen heading into the olympics i mean he was the 
the heart and soul of the team. Um, and so after that, my season that I didn't have like a set path. I didn't know who I was going to slide with. Everything was going to change. Um, and then a bad year just got worse because at our testing that year, I ended up pulling my hamstring. And so I went from the season before finishing third in the world, winning world cup medals, having a great year to pulling my hamstring and then not being able to race that entire world cup season leading up to the Olympics and was named the alternate. And I don't think I should have been named to that Olympic team because I didn't compete and the team was full of a phenomenal group of pushers and athletes. Um, but it hurt to be so close that year before and knew I was capable of competing at those Olympics, then having to be there in Korea on the sidelines watching. And so that, that's kind of the short version of my first four years in the sport. Right. And like to dive a little bit more into that, let's talk about like you go from, <clears throat> like you said, third in the world to pulling your hamstring, not being able to compete for an entire year. Like, yes, you got named to the team as the alternate, but like what kind of issues did you have to deal with going from, you know, winning a crystal globe, which in the sport of bobsled is a huge deal to realizing within a very short period of time, because bobsled off seasons are very short and going through an injury like that to where it's like four years of work, basically down the drain because you didn't get your opportunity to compete at the Olympics that year and have that type of experience for yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's tough and that experience really set me on my path for my next four years. And we'll get into that, but I mean, it, every single day of that season was like physically painful and not from my hamstring tear, but from having to sit on the sidelines and know how bad I wanted to compete and that I was good enough to compete. And I, I'm not saying that I was better than any other the guys on the team. Um, but at that point in my career, I had proven that like I can push fast and I can push fast with the best in the world and I was good enough to compete. So it's really hard just to sit on the sidelines and know that you're good enough and you're not even able to compete. But then at the same time, you have friends and teammates who you've been through the grinder with the last four years, like you're happy for them, right? Cause you get to see them like achieve their dreams. And like, it means a lot for you, for you to be able to support them. And I don't know, I don't think you talked about this with Carlo, but like the, the role of the alternate at the Olympics is you go there to move sleds, sand runners, pick up people's clothes at the line and make sure that their job is as easy as possible to compete. And it's a thankless job for the most part, but someone has to do it. And it was hard. Um, and, it, and in the end, I'm glad I did do it. But during the Olympics, when I was the alternate, it's, it's really tough. Right. And then Olympics go through. I mean, you have the experience of being there and seeing what it's all about. And 
being at that type of a race, obviously in bobsled, the Olympics or in any sport like that, the Olympics is like the pinnacle of your races or your sport, whatever you can participate in. What type of like fuel did that give you to come back? Or how did you use that as like motivation to kind of set yourself up for the next four years? Yeah. Um, for a little while I wasn't motivated. I, I thought I was done. It was too painful. The emotions were still too raw. Like I couldn't even think about coming back. Like after those Olympics, I came back, pretty much ran away from my problems, moved out to California, <laughs> tried to, <laughs> tried to forget about the sport of bobsled. Um, and I really did for three or four months. I, I didn't train. I didn't really talk to anybody. I didn't even think about bobsled. Um, and then I think with all things, um, time heals all. And I, I started to slowly consider and reevaluate what I wanted to do these next four years. And, and I think the ultimate factor for me coming back was I didn't want to look back in 10 years and say, I should have given it another go because as a push athlete, you have a very finite shelf life on how long you're going to be competitive and how long you're going to be good for maybe except for you because you're 37 and still pushing fast. (laughs) But I I, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to compete forever. And so if if I wanted to go to an Olympics and not regret it, it was going to have to be these next four years. Um, I had to have some real conversations with myself. And one of them that I had was if I come back for another four years, am I going to be okay with not making the Olympic team again? Mm. And like that, that really scared me. I was like, what if I come back for another four years and I don't make it? And I think that that was part of why I kind of disappeared for a while. I was like, I, I couldn't mentally, I couldn't handle that fact. I I wasn't prepared to try that hard again and not make it. Um, And only once I had that conversation with myself and said, can I come back and will I be okay if I don't make it? So that was, that that was the deciding point. And that was about July or June, July for me after the Olympics. So three, four months and then made the decision to come back and do it, uh, do it again for another four years. And I met you in that fall. That rookie class I came in with was was also a very big rookie class like yours. And I think, I mean, we, we probably had 30, 25 guys maybe that came out that year. Yeah, it was a big rookie class and it was also a really fun rookie class. Like there was a lot of good energy and it, it, it just felt different. So in, in the same way, it didn't feel like I was just going through the same thing again for another four years. It was like a lot of new a new blood and a lot of good dudes and a new group of fellas that turned out to be pretty awesome. Right. And uh, well, since you brought that up, we can kind of discuss that. Like the little mini series that I have going on here is obviously Carlo teammate. You are a teammate. The next few guys I have lined up for podcasts are all teammates and we call our group chat, the fellas. And that's kind of what it's been for the last four years. What was the, I've heard, not only you, but I've heard Carlo has said this, 
like Cody has mentioned this, Frankie has mentioned this. They said that this past quad, the group of guys that we had and the ones that stuck around, it was just probably like the best dynamic that they've experienced in their career throughout bobsled regardless. And I know you've said pretty much the same thing. Why do you think, or what would be the difference between like your first four years in the sport and then that second group that came in that four years of the sport? Why was that different? Ooh, man. Um, I, I, I guess I'll start by saying this. Bobsled is in relationship to making it to the Olympics it can be really tough because it's a team sport, but at the same time, not everyone's going to make it. And so depending on how many sleds you qualify, it might be eight guys or 12 guys go to the Olympics and you have 30, 40 guys all trying to make a handful of handful of spots to make it to the Olympics. And so there's this weird dynamic of you're in the trenches with these guys every day and you're best friends. But at the end of the day, um, only X amount of guys are going to go to the Olympics. And a lot of times that can cause a lot of toxicity and a lot of clicks and it just becomes not fun pretty quickly when there's that type of toxic environment. And the guys, this past quad felt like everyone was there for the right reasons and was genuine and supportive while still being competitive, like every guy who you compete against in the weight room or in the push track on the hill, like you obviously want to beat them, but it was done in a way that was respectful and it just made the environment a lot of fun. Like we could go compete really hard one day and then all hang out at that night and not take it personally if you got beat or if you had a bad day. I don't know. It was just, it was a very supportive and fun environment and it was purely because of the attitude that all the guys brought to the team. Right. Yeah. That the group of guys that we had, we, it was weird because I've been a part of team sports, but we were never necessarily competing for so few spots, even on like football, you might have a few guys that play the same position and there might be a little bit of competition in that, but there's never really like, I have to go out every single week and continue to earn my spot and make it because this guy's constantly trying to take my spot away from me. Um, Even though that was the whole scenario within bobsled is you could have a couple bad pushes or even a bad race and all of a sudden they're gone. Yeah. They're looking at the next guy saying, how can we bring this up? And even though that was the case in that environment, for whatever reason, the dudes that we had for the last four years, everyone was just, like hype to see anybody else race. Like you would feel yeah. bummed because you're not racing, but you would be so excited for the person that was racing. You'd be out there on the line supporting them, whether you're grabbing their stuff, cheering them on, whatever it is. Like the dynamic was a very unique dynamic that I've, I've never experienced in another sport like that before. I mean, there's a lot of things that you're going to never experience if you don't do bobsled, just because it's such a niche sport in and of itself. But yeah, so the the first couple of years of that quad, we had like a normal type quad to start off with. So 2019 yep. and then 2020 starts and we start having all of the COVID stuff pop up and that created a lot of issues for our federation, just in terms of trying to figure out how we're going to handle this situation. 
but then also trying to figure out how are we going to financially be able to sustain racing and traveling because it's a very expensive sport to be shipping sleds across the world and traveling throughout Europe and paying for hotels and food and housing for, you know, 30 athletes, 20 athletes, whatever it may be. There was year number one, we sent three teams on tour. So we had a full squad. I think it's worth noting too that we don't receive money from the government. So we're, we're all, we're funded by, the USOPC, which is the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, that's based off of, off of results. And then there's also the private funding and sponsorship that we get. And so when COVID hit, no one has money. And so all that, <laughs> the little bit of money that we do get just disappeared. Right. So that's kind of where I was going. I was like year one, we had, th- like, we had enough money to send two full women's teams, three full men's teams on tour. And we have our normal season year two COVID hits budget issues start to happen. We only send one sled on tour for the men's side and two teams for the women's side year three comes up. We're still dealing with COVID. We again only send Did anyone go on tour year three. I forget. Yeah. Cody, Carlo and Kyle and myself. So you, you guys went on tour year two. And yeah. then oh, so, I, I had surgery year three, so I don't really remember what happened. Yeah. You were, you were out of commission year three, but year year two, you, it was you, Hawk, Josh, and Cody. And then I don't remember who, Hunter. Hunter. Sorry. Yeah. And I don't remember who your alternate was. Uh, oh, Kyle. Kyle. It was Kyle. And then year three. And it wasn't Akeem. It was Chris Horn. Was it Chris Horn? That was year yeah, two? Was Horn, Josh, Hunter. Yeah. Oh, because Akeem was in basic. He was doing military. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you, Horn, Josh, and Kyle with Hunter, you guys have a tremendous year. You guys start having success again. And I think a lot of that was just because there was zero expectations because Hunter was a rookie on tour. And you yeah. guys were going out, pushing well, racing well, like finishing higher than you guys expected probably. And I know a lot of other countries also didn't expect to see some of the finishes that you guys have. Mm-hmm. We go into year three, COVID continues to just crush us because sponsors <laughs> don't want to give us any money. And we again only send one team on tour, which this that year it was Cody, myself, Carlo, and Kyle. And then I don't even remember if we had an alternate that year, to be honest. Like I don't I, I don't remember who that, came with that us. That year's just a blank slate to me. I sat <laughs> yeah. in my OTC room for a year. I don't remember anything. <laughs> But then we get into year four and those issues that the Federation was having started to like trickle down to the athletes. And I don't, I remember exactly how this conversation initially started. It started in the first year of the quad and we started kind of like half-assing this, but then when shit hit the fan it was like, okay, we need to get some money and we need to figure out how we're going to be able to send two sleds on tour because our goal as a men's team was we wanted to try to qualify three to go to the Olympics because that was going to give the most men the opportunity to compete on that stage. So the Federation, a little bit of a backstory, the Federation did not want to send two sleds on tour. They only wanted to send one on the World Cup and then have the other two sleds kind of fight it out on NAC, and then their plan was to send two sleds to the Olympics. We fought against that as just a men's team and said, no, we don't want to do that. We want to try to give the most opportunity to the most athletes to try to have their Olympic yep. experience. So we did a couple things that to 
really kind of jumpstart and fire that off. One was we started a GoFundMe and I'll let you explain the GoFundMe a little bit on how that just turned into an absolute blazing fire. And that led to what is now the most successful bobsled calendar of all time, <laughs> which is known yeah, as the bobsled. So <laughs> let's, let's talk about, I guess we'll, we'll wind it back a little bit. Start off from like, basically we found out that we weren't going to have enough money and then talk yeah. about the process of like, like a lot of this was just cafeteria talk and it yeah. ended up coming to fruition. So let's start off with, we find out we don't have enough money cafeteria talk happens. And then how does the men team go out and raise $130,000 in a few months pan? Yeah. So there's always been a, a bit of communication or lack of communication amongst the Federation, not to throw them under the bus here too hard. They're probably not listening, but throw we them. were under the impression, throw them. <laughs> we were under the impression that two sleds were going to be sent on tour the whole time on the world cup tour. And then, I don't know, a month, two months before the season started, they said, we don't have enough money, but you guys can self-fund if you want to. But you need to raise $75,000, I think was the rough estimate, because they don't know exactly how much it's going to cost. Right. And that's a lot of money for a bunch of broke athletes to raise if they want to try and make their own big dreams happen. Um, oh, wait, hold on, let me say one thing. And so the first thing... The, the athletes in the U.S. program make absolutely shit <laughs> like you, you would think <laughs> some go into debt to be in this sport you would think yeah. like people have this kind of i don't know where this expectation comes from they're like oh you're an olympic athlete that means you're a professional athlete that means you're making money you have sponsors yeah. you have a salary blah 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 on the u.s all the time <laughs> yeah. people think i'm loaded now that i'm an olympian i'm like wrong oh <laughs> On I, from our experience, the four years I was there, making the national team meant that you got a stipend of two hundred and fifty dollars a month, and the way that you could bump that stipend up was race performances, winning medals, or I mean that's basically like or start times. Like if you have a start yeah. standard, then you could, but like it would cap out at, I think the maximum is like you could win gold medals at every race, and you're going to make two grand a month. Would yeah, be like that. That's the cap. most you'll ever make. So twenty four grand in a year if you're the best in the world and right. go to the Olympics is what you'll get in stipend money. So the Federation tells us we have no money. They say we're gonna need to get seventy five thousand dollars if we want to self fund. And I don't even think they asked us to raise it. I think they just asked us to pay seventy five thousand dollars. They're like, if you have seventy five <laughs> grand, then just fork it over and we'll send you. Yeah. Like it was an easy thing to do. Um so the first thing we did was start a GoFundMe with an expectation of, I mean, we set the GoFundMe goal at like 75,000 or whatever, how much money we thought we needed. to. It raise. was 75,000. Yeah. But we, I mean, realistically, I don't think we thought we were going to raise $75,000 no. on GoFundMe. Not we were at all. thinking maybe with the connections and social media following we can have, we can get, I don't know, 10, 15 grand or something. Right. And within, oh, I forget the exact timeline here, but within like 24 hours, we had over 10 grand and a couple days we had 30, 40. And then within a week we had $95,000. It was 
crazy. Shout out to the pool family. <laughs> shout out to the pool family and our sled name, <laughs> Pool Running. Pool running. <laughs> Do you remember sitting in the cafeteria with all the guys on the team and every time a new donation came in, we just like start losing our minds? Yeah. So I, I remember when that $25,000 donation came in, we thought it was fake. We were like, oh, somebody meant to put $250 and they added too many zeros. And, <laughs> and then, so like backstory is like, we had this GoFundMe going and it had been two or three days at this point, And, at the training center, all the fellows would get together. Like every meal was basically communion for the guys. Like all the guys would be there. We would spend hours in the cafeteria, just hanging out, talking, which is how the GoFundMe came about. We were like, all right, we need to make some money. Let's just start a GoFundMe and we'll see how much we can get. And then we'll try to just continue doing other things to add on top of that. So we have this GoFundMe, like Jimmy said, within 24 hours, we had 10 grand. We're like, wow, we didn't even expect to probably make that much this quick or at all. And then within two days, we had probably, I don't remember, it was like 18, 20 grand, something like that. And then on day three, we're all sitting at the cafeteria. This was at dinner time. And I don't yeah, remember I, remember I don't remember who got the notifications, like who set the, the GoFundMe up, but I think it was you. I want to say- yeah, me, me, me and Dakota had a joint admin on the GoFundMe. Right. So I think it was you that got the notification and noticed it. And everyone thought, because we always are joking around and everyone always gives each other shit and we just have a good time at, when we're ever at, we're eating breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And you were yeah. like, guys, somebody just donated $25,000. <laughs> and all of us look at you like, there's no <laughs> fucking way anybody donated twenty five grand. And he's like, no. You're, so we're like, then we're going through the process of like, who is this person? Maybe they meant to give us 250 because that was like a common like thing that people were doing. Yeah. It was like 250, 250. was a pretty average donation amount. We're like, all right, th they meant to donate $250 and they just added too much. Like somebody's going to hit us up for a refund. And they were like, well, who's the pool family? And then Kyle comes walking into the cafeteria <laughs> and he hears, yeah, us, he hears us say the pool family. He's like, oh, that's my friends. We're like, what? You're, you're like, you know, your friend's family just donated $25,000. He goes, yeah, that sounds about right. Like he was not surprised at all because he knows who they are. And he's yeah. apparently there's some huge construction business. Like they're worth millions and millions of dollars. And the pool family's doing okay. The, two, the pool family's doing all right. And Kyle was like, they didn't even tell me they were going to donate the money. But that set off a bomb. Once we got that 25 grand, there were a yeah. number of donations that from that point on over the next 24 hours that they were like 10, 15 10, K, 15 K, 5 yeah. K. And then it was within a, less than a week. I want to say it was like five days. We yeah. were at over 90 grand. And we like, at that point we we're like, we're going on tour. Like everyone was so excited to do this. And the GoFundMe was more than a success than we thought it was going to be. And also I'll say this about the GoFundMe, what it also helped everyone kind of realize is what we spoke about earlier is about how all the guys were genuinely excited for each other. Like we had 20 guys all promoting the GoFundMe, all reaching out to people, knowing that only eight of us were going to be going on tour, but everyone was involved trying to make that thing happen just because we knew that it was going to create more opportunities for more athletes that year. Um, yeah. And then on top of the GoFundMe, we had project number two, which it like, 
in terms of how successful that was, it was like dollar wise, not as successful as the GoFundMe, obviously, but the yeah. pro- how that project went from idea to print in such a short amount yeah. of time and the quality that we put into that was incredible. So the, the second part a- of incredible. <laughs> the <laughs> second part of our fundraiser was the Bob spread. And for those that don't know, the Bob spread is a men's USA bobsled team calendar. And our idea of it was we were trying to do a tasteful version of like the ESPN, the body issue, but bobsled style. And obviously we put the fellas twist on it and there's some outrageous photos in there. Uh, if you don't have one, they're not available anymore. It is, it was an exclusive. I mean, we could make it available again. The, so I'll do a quick rewind here. Um, every so often I start getting a bunch of followers on social media and they're all dudes. Yep. And I'm like, where, man, where are all these dudes coming from? <laughs> and I realize every so often on like some websites, the Bob spread will make its rounds again. It'll be like, Oh, remember the, uh, the Olympians from the team USA bobsled team and how like naked and hot they were. And they'll like reshare the article. So then I'll get a whole bunch of more followers and this was in the fall. And so the calendar wasn't for sale. And so then I reactivated again and I sold a bunch of more calendars. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's incredible. So let's talk about the process of the bobsled. Again, that was a cafeteria talk, but that happened year one, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've had this idea for four years. Um, and so Blaine mentioned at the beginning that I'm a photographer. I kind of started just as a hobby. I bought a camera. I like taking photos. I enjoy photography. And then throughout the second quad, I kind of devoted myself and spent a little more time taking photography seriously and started doing some paid gigs, doing some portrait sessions. I did some weddings, which I now hate. Um, but I, I was pretty pretty serious about photography and I, I would always take photos of the guys working out or pushing or sliding pretty much if I wasn't competing myself and I didn't have anything else to do I had a camera in my hand and I would just try to like document and take cool photos and so one of the ideas we had in the cafeteria one day is how funny would it be if we made a men's team calendar um and so that that was year one of the quad and then and we took once we found out three photos that year yeah, th- we did. It was a we, very different direction, though. Very, very different direction. We d- we didn't have, it wasn't set in stone what what we wanted the vibe of our calendar to be. Um, it was a lot more tasteful, arguably. <laughs> a lot more clothing, for sure. <laughs> a lot more clothing. Um, but after we found out that we didn't have the money, in conjunction with the GoFundMe, we finally decided that we were going to make this calendar. Um, we thought if we did it at a high enough quality and did a good enough job promoting it on social media and various other channels, we thought we could sell quite a few of these. And Blaine, do you remember the number that you kept on quoting of how many calendars you wanted to sell? 100,000. So, 100,000. <laughs> for, for about two months, Blaine walked around the training center telling everyone we were going to sell 100,000 like, I was convinced. I was riding the high of the GoFundMe. So I was like, oh, the pool family is going to buy at least 500 copies on their own. So, <laughs> but I was walking around like, we're going to make 
uh, what was it going to be? It was like $4 million had we had sold 100,000 calendars or something outrageous It was like something that. outrageous, yeah. Yeah, I was like, we're going to make $4 million. Every guy in the calendar is going to end up with like $275,000 each. We're gonna, like, I was convinced that we were selling 100,000 copies. We, we were riding high. We were so high. So the, uh, the two months before the season started, maybe like a month and a half, they had named the team and some of the guys went to China for the test event, but the national team stayed back in Lake Placid. Um, there was no one else in Lake Placid. We didn't have anything to do. We weren't sliding. So all we had to do was lift and push. And so we had a decent amount of downtime. And so in that downtime is when we started shooting the Bob spread. And we had a pretty simple setup. I had uh, two lights my camera and then we would just go on location somewhere and pick out a spot and try to get as cool a photo as we could. The, yeah. The, the, the short amount of time that we were able to kind of pump that out was incredible. And the photos that we had gotten were better than I expected that we were going to get because like, I was just thinking like, it, cause at first when we started, we set it up in the gym and we had, like a piece of paper as the backdrop and we were just taking photos. And I think the idea was, okay, this is going to be the calendar and we'll just use a bunch of these photos to kind of put it together. And then it expanded yeah. to, I don't remember what the first one was. I think it was Dakota in Manio when we, so, oh, yeah. so we went from taking like shirtless photos with our helmets and some of them in the speed suits to Dakota opened the door and just <laughs> butt ass naked <laughs> in the basketball gym holding a helmet over his penis just in the moon boots just, in the moon boots he, he takes that photo and then Manio does one as well his is definitely like an ESPN body like that would be in ESPN the body it's just yeah. him in a three point stance obviously he's naked you can't see anything though but it, like the we saw those two photos and we instantly knew it was like all right we need to up the like yeah. Up the ante on everything more. that we're going to do from here on out. So all the other photos sure. we basically threw out. And then the Bob Shred got crazy. And we were taking photos. Like, yeah. I did the Speedo. It got weird. <laughs> some, of them, <laughs> some of them were weird. I did this, the Speedos in the, the Ice House. Honestly, I'm not going to say this to brag, but my favorite photo is the one that I took. Not of you, because I, I, I am co-photographer for this project. But yes, you are. <laughs> basically, Jimmy sets the camera up and is like, "Okay, all you have to do is just point the camera and push the button." So, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still taking title as co-photographer. But the the one in the woods with the bibs, that's oh, I love that photo. That is my favorite photo of the entire calendar. Yeah, like I, I tell people the what the idea of I was like, just think Vanity Fair cover, and then they see the photo and they're like, "You guys nailed it!" Like this is exactly yeah. what I thought of. I think one of my favorite things about the calendar is that each photo is so different. And the first time that you look through it, like it's just every photo is like from left field. You're like, what in God's name is this? And you turn the page. And it's just like, it's wild. And it's so funny. It is. We did a whole, like to help promote the calendar. We did a whole compilation of people's reactions and that's exactly that how really their funny. reactions are. They would, they start on the, the, the cover and it's just us walking down the track and like we got shorts on everyone's shirtless 
and then you immediately open the first page and they're just like, holy shit, what's going on? Because the cover doesn't give it justice. It doesn't lead you into what you're about to see. Yeah. Uh, do you remember how shamelessly we promoted it to every single person we saw? Everybody. A, we gave so it out we were, as a prize during the, the broad jump championship. Yeah. Uh, I remember one day, so we were still in Lake Placid. We were at the top of the track for a sliding session. And NBC was there, yes. and they were setting they were setting up for an interview with Lolo Jones. Um, it was like a big season for her. They had this huge interview, setting up like light, sunshade, chair, camera, everything. And Blaine and I aren't flying that day, and so we're just hanging out on the deck up there. And one of the NBC producers comes over and talks to us. I don't I don't remember what we're chatting about. And then she's she's getting ready to leave, and Blaine goes, "Do you want to see the calendar we made?" <laughs> Dude, I He's was like, what? I was convinced we were selling a hundred thousand copies. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, haha, you know, like they the men's pop up team made a calendar and then we showed her pictures and she was like, Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, Maybe we can get you guys on the today show. And like that just like that was dangerous for us because then we thought we just had a gold mine. Yes. <laughs> we did that so we did that multiple times. The NBC people were there like but here's the thing. Every time we talked to somebody, because there was a lot of like TV stuff going around and people coming out for interviews because it was an Olympic year. And oh, yeah. There was the, the Washington Post the people, Washington the, Post. the NBC Philly people. Yeah, everybody. So anytime somebody was coming around, we would always be like, start talking about the calendar and we'd be explaining to them like, oh, we're, we're using it as a fundraiser. And they like these people are like in TV or in film or whatever. So they probably hear ideas not like a bobsled calendar but they probably hear ideas like this all the time so yeah when you're just like oh we made a calendar to be a fundraiser people will go oh that's cool and they probably are thinking like bobsled photos us racing or training or whatever it is and every single time that we showed any of these people the photos they immediately like switched gears and were like like the washington post guy was like i think i could get you guys an article on the Washington post about like they, yeah. they just immediately switched gears because I think they also saw a gold mine out of it. Like, okay, this is yeah. not what I expected it to be. We, we had a quality product and a good story behind it. And that's like everyone's dream heading into the Olympic season is to get a, uh, a clickbaity article. And we had it for sure. Yeah. The Bob spread, it was such a good time. <laughs> just not being in China for one. Cause we all heard about how terrible it was. And we had nothing to do. So it was just us constantly mapping out what the next shot was going to be. And then we'd go out there. Like we had guys holding lights in different angles to try to get the lighting right. Chuck's getting hugged by a bear. (laughs) (laughs) We did some shots in the garage. Like Jimmy shot is in the national team garage. And we like, we also had to do it in a way where we were very careful to like not have sponsors being shown somewhere. So like, we had to yeah. turn lights off, turn lights on, position things, move it around. Like it was an actual production to make that calendar come to life. Or not let the Olympic Training Center know that we were doing nude photo shoots in their building. Oh, we had so many naked people. In- <laughs> because oh we my knew. Gosh. I remember. Like we knew. Oh, go ahead. We were on the basketball court. So at the training center, there's like a three court basketball court in there. And there's one camera that's in the corner, and we knew where it was at. So we would just uh, strategically set the paper up as the backdrop so you couldn't see what was going on on the opposite side you just see like flashes and jimmy taking photos which it wasn't an uncommon thing to see at the training center because like jimmy said 
he always had his camera on him just taking photos. So luckily nobody came out and was like, what's going on here? Like they were just like, oh, Jimmy's taking photos again. So, but yeah, we had like absolutely against the rules to be butt ass naked in the training center and not every safe sport <laughs> violation. there is. <laughs> and we're just like the, the whole process of everything was amazing though. So the, the reason I brought that up is because it ended up helping us. Like in total, we raised $130,000 or something right around there. And yep. we were able to not only send a team on tour so we could have two full squads on the world cup. We were also able to have a little bit extra money trickle down to Frank, to the NAC to help him pay for housing. Cause when athletes go to NAC, which is the North America cup, it's a lot of that is self-funded. Very rarely is the organization going to very fund, rarely. Yeah. Fund any aspect of that, maybe shipping sleds, but like these guys had to go to Whistler and pay for their own travel, pay for their own housing. And then they had to pay for their own ship sled or sled shipping to down to park city and then pay for their own travel. And again, back to Lake Placid. So we raised enough money, not only to send one team on tour, but to also help Frankie out in funding his season. So he could try to be that third sled that was going to compete at the Olympics. So we go on yeah. tour that year and not the year that we expected to happen in terms of race results and everything that we wanted to happen. We get towards the end of the season and it get, it's getting close to the time where they're going to start writing down the names of who they want to be on the Olympic team. And that committee is making those <clears> selections <throat> go through your process of like what that last month was like going from the rough season that we had knowing that we weren't yeah. going to qualify three sleds and we were only going to get two into naming the, of the Olympic team. Yeah, that was, that, that was tough. And I actually haven't had to think about this here in a second. So I race, there are eight world cup races in a season, and then you either have world championships or Olympics. And so I race the first five races of the season. Um, had a, had a couple good races, couple good pushes, couple medium races, couple medium pushes. So like not terrible, not great. Um, but we, we didn't get the results that we needed to qualify three sleds to the Olympics. And we knew that a couple weeks before. Um, I, would, I would say we knew that probably week five, week Christmas. six. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like three weeks ago, we, we kind of realized that we're not going to qualify three sleds for the Olympics. And then simultaneously, they had brought Kyle Wilcox. I hope you have him on the podcast. Um, he's he's going to come on. Okay, good. Um, he's, got, he's got quite the story, too. And so they brought Kyle up from the NAC to compete on World Cup for the short second half of the season. And they were looking to get numbers on Kyle. Um, and so that means I wasn't racing and that would, that was really hard for me because in my mind, you think that if you're not racing, that means that they're not looking at you. Right. And especially as you're getting towards the date which they named the Olympic team, if you're not racing and other people are racing, like 
it's, it's pretty difficult. And here I am four years later and I find myself in a similar situation to four years ago where I'm not racing again. And like, there's just like this huge flood of like emotions and flashback and like it all came back and it, it felt all very similar. Um, but at the same time, Kyle's one of my best friends and he's like all around the most solid dude that you you could ever want on a team. Like Kyle, Kyle's that guy. He's, 100%. he's the teammate that you want. Yes. And so the very last week of racing before they named the team, we're in St. Moritz, Switzerland and Kyle's racing and I'm not, and we're roommates. So yeah. Right. And so not only is there like, obviously Kyle wants to go to the Olympics. He has his own dreams. I have my journey and my dreams. And so I want to go to the Olympics and now we're like rooming together. And so it's just this level of complexity. That's like, it's just so hard to deal with. Um, and I think overall, like we did a pretty good job. Um, and that whole process of, them naming the team in St. Moritz was probably the most stressed I've ever been in my entire life. They had a, uh, I don't know why, but they chose to announce the team over a Zoom call in oh, I Saint know Moritz. 100% why. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't get chairs thrown at them? Exactly. They'd rather not, you guys are all in the same building and they decided to do a Zoom call it's because they don't want to be around the people that don't make the team. <laughs> You're right. You're hundred percent right. That's why they did that. And so everyone, there are some guys on the team who they know they're going to get named like USA one hundred sled. Like those guys have been performing well. They medaled in a, a race. Like they're going to get named to the team, but there's a group of us. Like we don't know. I, I very well could have not been named to the team. Um, and during that zoom call before they actually named the team, I had my Apple watch on and I was tracking my heartbeat and my heartbeat was 125 beats a minute sitting down in a chair. Oh. Like, I, I felt like I was going to throw up. Um, it, it was awful. Um, and I, like, I, I genuinely didn't know if I was going to be named. Um, and again, I had to go through that conversation with myself of, am I going to be okay if for a second time I get named to the Olympic team? Um, and I, I had to tell myself, like, I came back knowing that this was a possibility. Like nothing in life is guaranteed. You can get injured. You can get replaced. Bobsled's a, a hard sport. And as a brakeman, you're just, you're pretty replaceable. Your equipment. You, your equipment. The, uh, the great Steve Holcomb used to say that brakemen are like tires on a car. <laughs> one, one wears out, you can just switch them out for a new one. Um, and it's kind of harsh, but I like at the same time, it's true. There's always someone who's going to come up and replace you. Hundred percent. Um, and so, like, I, I had to tell myself that I was going to be okay if I didn't get named. And like, thankfully, I, I was named. And when I heard them name, say my name, I like, no joke, fell to my knees and just like bawled. Like, I don't know if I've ever cried that hard in my entire life. It was eight years of, like, stress and emotional burden all came out at once. And, like, I'm not, 
I'm not an overly emotional person. Just ask my girlfriend. She says I don't have a lot of things. She, she says I don't have a lot of feelings. Um, I cried so hard. It was just like this huge weight that was off my shoulders to hear my name and finally realize that after eight years of putting work in that like I had achieved my dream. And like it would have been really hard had I not been named for a second time, but I would have been okay. But to hear my name was like that, that still, there's like a couple other moments throughout the Olympics and like getting ready to the Olympics that stand out. But like that moment of like hearing my name is like one that like I will remember for the rest of my life. Was question was Kyle in the room with you on the same zoom call? No. So I, was not in the room with Kyle. I like realized very early on once that they were going to do a zoom call that like we needed to be in separate places. Um, and so the way this works and I went through this four years ago is if they're going to name you as the alternate, they will call you and tell you before they name the Olympic team that you're not getting named. And so four years ago, like I didn't race and I knew I wasn't going to get named, but like, you know, there's that still that small part of you that hopes, you know, like maybe they're going to name me. Um, and so like I, I was holding out to the very last minute four years ago, or I guess, yeah, four years ago. And I got a phone call and they're like, Hey, come down to the meeting room. And they're like, Hey, we're not going to like straight up. We're not naming you to the Olympic team. You want you to be the alternate. And so you just like fucking just like punched to the gut right there. Um, and so they, they did that same thing with Kyle. Um, and I, I didn't know at the time that they had called Kyle beforehand um, and told him that he was going to be the alternate. And when he comes on, he can talk about that and his journey. Um, but yeah, he, he went through that process. So before they named the team, he already knew that like he wasn't getting named. So like, I've been in his exact shoes and it is, it sucks because as few people make the Olympic team, there's an even smaller percentage of people who get named as the alternate and right. to be like so close, but like not on the team, like you're on the Olympic team as an alternate, but you don't get to call yourself an Olympian. It's, it's really hard. And so, I, I commend Kyle for how he handled himself and helped out the team in China and everything that he went through. Yeah, well, I'm excited to get Kyle on that on the podcast because his story is bizarre and incredible, and yeah, everything I mean, that he went through a, was insane. A roller coaster of getting fucked over oh, endlessly for like God. a month. I still feel bad, and he for handled him. it with. I so bad and, and he handled, handled it better than I think anyone in his position could. I think he's the only person on the team that would have been able to handle that. Yeah. Um, Anybody else would have so murdered somebody. W- without going into details, when I was the alternate in Korea, there was something that happened um, with some guys on the team and I felt like it wasn't right. And I was rather upset to say the least. And 
I didn't handle myself overly well. <laughs> um, and Kyle would have just taken it in stride and yeah. been, been the great teammate that he is. So you make the team and then like Carlo touched on it a little bit about how this Olympic experience was much different than anything he had experienced before. Granted, he had only been to the Olympics one time before, but he explained yeah. it as a vastly different experience. Obviously, you've been to that same Olympic Games. You were an alternate, yep. so your experience wasn't necessarily you know, competing at that Games, but you still got to be there. How would you yeah. compare those two experiences from being at the Olympics in Pyeongchang in 2018 to being at the Olympics in Beijing in 2022? Yeah, so in Korea, our, being the alternate in Korea, as hard as that was and like as difficult as that was for me to be there the whole time and not being able to compete and be close, I am now so thankful that I accepted the role of the alternate and was over there in Korea with the team because minus walking in opening ceremonies and competing, I got to do everything else that the Olympics has to offer. I was in the Olympic village. I got to go to the events. I got to go to the team USA houses. I went to sponsored dinners and I partied and I like, I was probably like, bearing my emotions by trying to have so much fun because I was just a wreck, but I had a lot of fun. Um, and so when we get to these Olympics in China this past year with COVID and all the protocols, all of that fun stuff is out the window. But the only thing that I really wanted to do is walk in opening ceremonies and compete. And so, yeah, COVID sucked and China wasn't great, but Competing and opening ceremonies were like the two things that I I wanted to do because opening ceremonies is like a rite of passage, and then competing is what actually earns you Olympian. So you could go to the Olympics and be named to the team, but hurt yourself the day before the event and not compete, and then technically you're not an Olympian. Like you have to compete in the Olympics to be an Olympian, and so I was really looking for those two things and COVID and China side, like I checked those two big boxes. And so it was, it was a successful game to me. And I'm more thankful that I had that experience in Korea. And I know Carlo touched on it last week when you talked to him, that a lot of those guys who was the first time at the Olympics, like I really hope that they go back in 2026 and are able to experience the full Olympics. Right. Because if, if that's your only experience, you're like, I mean, it was cool, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the atmosphere and the celebration that a normal Olympics is like, Um, but, but at the same time, like who knows if you're going to make it back in four years, you know, like that, that could have been your shot. So like nothing's ever, nothing's ever a given in this sport. No, that's very true. And then, so you check those two boxes. You got to walk in opening ceremonies. You raced at the Olympics. Post Olympics, what was the experience finally realizing that goal and being able to check those two boxes? Did you, 
have any type of like moment after the Olympics was over or for a period of time where you were just like, now what's going to happen with me? Like, what do I do next? Yeah. So I knew I was going to be done with bobsledding no matter what happened. If, if I want to go medal or if I didn't even make the team, I was going to be done. Eight years is plenty enough of my life to give to the sport of bobsled. Eight. Eight years in bobsled is equal to like LeBron James, 20 years in the NBA. It's, it's taken its toll physically, emotionally, financially, (laughs) spiritually. Like I'm very ready to, I was very ready to move on and be done with the sport of bobsled. Um, what was your question again? When you started to start this, did you, what was the, like, what was that experience like or what were the emotions that you felt after you were able to compete at the Olympics and walk in opening ceremonies? Got it. Like that moment of like, what's next for you and, and how did you process all of that? Yeah. Um, what's really cool about the Olympics is that, and it's not why you do it because or else there'd be no one in this sport because we never get any attention. But when you're at the Olympics, it's like, it's a huge global event and you're doing new news interviews and you have this attention and it's like, it's cool. And it's a, it's a fun experience. And you go from being at the height of the global stage at the biggest sporting event in the world. And then 36 hours later, you're home and no one gives a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, for there are people who go to the Olympics and, they win Olympic medals and they have millions of dollars in endorsements and those people do very well in life. And those people, you know, their names and anyone who goes to the Olympics and you don't know their name and they're not like a buddy of yours, like they come home and it's just is what it is. Like the Olympics are over. People move on and you come back after being on such a high and you're like, well shit, now I'm back to nothing. Right. Um, and so that's a really interesting feeling. And I, I wasn't under the impression that the Olympics was going to change my life. You know, I wasn't going to make all this money or suddenly get all of these job opportunities and endorsements and never have to work again for my entire life if I went to the Olympics. I knew that wasn't going to happen. It was more like a, a personal validation and um, like checking the box of I'm able to do this and it's a lifelong dream. Um, coming back and knowing or not knowing what I was going to do was tough. And it still is tough. Um, I think I have it figured out now um, what I'm going to do. But for several months there, I mean, first off, I came home and I did nothing. I just sat on the couch for like a month. I was just so emotionally and physically exhausted, beat up. I blew out my back. My body hurt. I was jet lagged as fuck. Like I couldn't do anything. And I just sat on the couch for like a month. I didn't work out. I like I was in New Hampshire. My girlfriend moved to New Hampshire, and I followed her there. I didn't know anybody. I didn't do anything. I just like sat on the couch for a month. And then finally, I was like, it's time to start figuring it out. Um, and that's what I've slowly started to do over these past eleven months now. 12 months, I guess we're like a year, exactly a year from finishing up the Olympics. Um, and I'm going to stick with photography. Uh, I'm now doing lots of 
my goal is to eventually become an architectural photographer, um, but I'm starting out with interior design and custom home builders and that um, genre of photography and something that I really love. And I'm going to continue chasing this dream, another dream. That's awesome. Until somebody hits you up asking for another calendar. There have been talks of another calendar and there's been talks of another calendar. Oh yeah. And, and the women want to be in it too. Oh, okay. (laughs) They'll sell a hundred thousand copies for sure. Oh my God. I mean, with the, uh, selling a calendar of just dudes, we're really limiting ourselves to 50% of the population. (laughs) Uh, Let's be real. I would say 95%. No, I'd say 90% of the calendars we sold were to men looking for a calendar of other men. Oh, 1000%. Yeah. And then the 10% was like, let's just say the 10% (laughs) was our parents and friends that were buying. It was like gag gifts for people during Christmas. For sure. Um, and I I haven't decided. There's a couple options. I don't think it can be a calendar every single year. It kind of ruins its um, purpose or lure. Either do one for world championships in 2025 because we have our home worlds at Lake Placid in 2025. I'd which come I out think, of retirement for that. For the calendar? Or for the bobsled. For the calendar. <laughs> that sounds much more fun than bobsled. Yeah, I'll come to Placid for round two. Yeah. So either do it World Champs year and Olympic year or just Olympic year. World Champs. It's a, I feel like that's a big deal to us because it's at Placid and we got robbed of it already. So Yeah, we did. Like that, I, that was one thing I was very upset about throughout my career doing bobsled is the fact that we got robbed of world championships because it was going to be on our home track. We were going to do really well. Everyone was like peaking for the right moments and then it just gets ripped away yeah. and thrown back in Altenburg, which yeah. is the track that everyone hates. But I think yeah. world champs is a big no. deal to us, but the calendar should be Olympics. an Olympic year type thing. Like it's, it's got to be in every four years where it's like people know the Olympics are coming. People know this calendar is coming as well. It's like run it back. All right. <laughs> Olympics are coming up this year, but so is the Bob spread round number two, yeah, round maybe. number three. But- I, 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 I agree with you. I think, that, I think that makes it more special. And then there's obviously like in the U S no one really cares about world championships. Bobsled. No, not at all. It's the- Outside of Lake Placid, which is hosting the event, no one has any idea that it's happening. Nobody cares. So build the hype and momentum for Olympic year. Add uh, some women who, like, I've had several of the women on the team come up to me and say, I want to be in the next calendar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Super excited. All right. Last question, because I know a lot of the bobsled community listen to Carlos episode and they appreciate the the notoriety that my podcast is bringing to the sport sure (laughs) millions Um, of followers yes so much but it's a very small community and people just like to hear bobsledders talk about bobsledding uh the, the question i ended up with carlo was what is your favorite track 
and why? And what is your least favorite track and why? All right. Favorite track is Koenigsee in Southern Germany for a couple of reasons. Rest um, in peace. Rest in peace. It got destroyed by a flood, just absolutely demolished. And I don't know if they're rebuilding it yet. Um, the, the track itself is a lot of fun to ride. Uh, it has some really cool and unique features that you don't have anywhere else. The fans, and especially the finish section, is electric. You come down, and I mean, there's not a ton of fans at bobsledding, but they've built stadium seating in the finish line, and so you come down into this little stadium seating section, and they're blasting music, and everyone's cheering, and it's just a really fun environment. The hotel that we stay at there is amazing. The food is awesome. It's beautiful. Um, and my best memories from bobsledding with Steve Holcomb where we finished fifth at world champs and going into the fourth run, we were uh, two or three hundredths out of third place going into the final run. And we needed like the biggest push of our lives. And we were trying to get below a 480 in a push and we had gone 481, three pushes in a row. And Carlo looks at me and he's like, Jim, 470s are bust. And we're like, absolutely. We're on like a gram of caffeine each. We're like, I'm almost crying because I've had so much caffeine and I'm so hyped up. And we we push, we push 479, and it was just like this huge moment for us. And I'm really proud of it. Um, and that's my favorite track, least favorite track. No surprise to anybody. <laughs> uh, Altenburg. This every time I've been to Altenburg this past quad, I've crashed. Um, and some some hard crashes too, like the sled, like completely washing machines. So I did like 360 degrees, Hunter and Josh. Uh, oh, got destroyed. Got, they got backboarded into an ambulance after the crash. So like, that's super scary. Yeah. Um, COVID started in Altenburg. Like I got dumped in Altenburg. It was just like one thing <laughs> after the other. <laughs> I was like, get me out of here, man. I think I'm going to ask all the fellows when they're on here. And I'm pretty sure all the Berg is going <laughs> to tally up the most least favorite tracks. So far, we got one for St. Moritz is what Carlos said. His is favorite. And one for Koenigsegg. Koenigsegg. I was fortunate enough to be able to race there once before the flood happened and destroyed yeah. it. So Koenigsegg is amazing. I love that track. I mean, I, if, if St. Moritz had a better, uh, I mean, there's just no fans. There's no like venue for the fans to watch the track. Like you can't get up to the top because it's at this weird Dracula sex club. And at the <laughs> bottom, <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> I know. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> it's like this really private club in St. Moritz that you can't get into. And inside there's like pictures of naked women being auctioned off. It's just fucking weird. But it, there's no place for... <laughs> it, it, okay, you open this door. We have to... Like any, right, anybody who's... Go listening to this go google right now saint moritz dracula club it i've googled this before and it's like one of the hardest places to get into like you have to be a member and it's just like obviously it's saint moritz so everyone that's there is probably a billionaire if they live in saint moritz and but you have to have like that old old money yes deep connection this isn't like new wealthy like you can't just like have a billion dollars and go join this club like you have to have been like your family has had to have been a member of this club for centuries in order to be involved in this club. Now 
but so it's this very, very, very exclusive, like he said, basically a sex club. There are photos on the wall of like them auctioning off naked women. There's like dead bats that have been put in picture frames and for whatever reason, like weird parties with masks. And it's just like, you get real like orgy vibes from it. And then, and then they just open it up and let bobsledders come in there and use it as a locker room during races. (laughs) And there's always like broken glass on the floor. Yeah. It's just like, Oh yeah, you guys could just come in here. So it's like, that's and I remember the first time I walked in there, and then I remember Googling the Dracula Club in St. Moritz, and I just thought to myself, was like, I'm probably one of the few, however many people in the world that have ever been inside this building now. And I just like yeah. they just opened it up and was like, here, Bob Sutter, use this as your locker room. Don't mind the stains on the couches and the chairs or whatever. Oh, <laughs> don't don't shine a black light. Do not anywhere. shine a black light in that building at all. Wow. Oh, the Dracula yeah. Club um, in St. Moritz. If, if St. Moritz had a better fan atmosphere, it probably could be my favorite. Um, I just don't think it's very fan friendly and no, it's not it's, as fun as an atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, is Kun- oh, Koenigsee is the, the crop fin. The donuts. So my one, <laughs> so my, my rookie year was the one year I got a race in Koenigsee. I'll tell the story and this will be a good one to end on. And I remember I was racing with Olsen and uh, I don't remember how this topic came up, but there's always like spots where it's like the only good thing about Altenburg is the donor kebabs. Outside of that, there's nothing good in Altenburg. Nothing. Like there's a one kebab place all the bobsledders go to. It just makes amazing donor kebabs. When you're in Koenigsee, there's this little booth that sells basically these little fried donut balls. And they're like a little bit bigger than a golf ball, I would say. Like but they're like dense. Yeah, but they're dense. like you hold one of them and it's like this thing's got some weight to it. Like it's almost like I don't know what kind of dough that they use, but it's just dense. Deep fried donut or pancake type donut ball thing. And I remember Olson was telling me about these things and it was like, Oh, you have to get the crop fin, you have to get the crop fin. So I was like, All right, we get there and I had one. Somebody had bought one. I was like, oh, I want to try it. So I had one. I was like, oh shit, this thing is amazing. So I just reached and they my cost like a euro or something. Yeah, I reached in my pocket and I had like a bunch of euros and change. And I'm standing up on that balcony. And I drop it down to Olsen. I was like, just buy me however many that gets me. And he comes back with a dozen. And I ended up eating all 12 of them. And like just I didn't have dinner that night or anything. I was just sitting there like I had <laughs> way too much cropping, but it was absolutely <laughs> <laughs> worth it to experience that the crop fin and Koenig say that might. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have it the second time I went there because of COVID, but yeah, man, it was incredible. RIP Koenig say RIP to Koenig say, well, Jimmy, I appreciate you coming on the show. The one is an yeah, awesome episode. Um, where can people find you on the socials? If they want to see your photography, maybe reach out to you for photo- photography, maybe you want to do a yep. calendar. So- Ooh, yeah, if you want to do a calendar or just see what I'm up to on social media. I don't post a ton, but that's where all my photography goes. It's at Reed James K, R-E-E-D James K, all lowercase, nothing in between. Um, I have a link to my website so you can see the Bob spread if you want to check that out. Um, I'll switch it over to uh, able to be purchased again, and then you can follow me and I'll follow you back. and. 
Thanks for listening. Awesome. Appreciate you being on, man. Yeah. Thank you for having me.